American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Uh, again, I'm Luke Walzer, director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Baruch College and one of the members of the steering committee who's been planning um, the CUNY Digital History Archive over the last 18 months or so. Um, I feel a little sheepish um, because I wanted to hear more from these panelists and I want to get to the upcoming panelists, but that's exactly why we need a digital history archive. So I wanted to talk briefly uh, about our process, about how we've been approaching this, um, what questions have arisen, um, and how we're aiming to resolve them. Um, so we've had four planning meetings since January 2013. We've connected them with various smaller meetings. We've had collaborative writing exercises between these meetings. Um, and uh, the folks who are on the back of your, your, uh, your program for tonight have all participated in one way or another, and I want to acknowledge them. Um, and I also want to acknowledge you, because you are now members of our team. Um, you've been drafted into service of the CUNY Digital History Archive. You've irrevoc irrevocably volunteered yourself to help us as we go forward. You're an ambassador for us. Um, we want the CUNY Digital History Archive to be often on your mind um, as you go about your work at this university and beyond. Um, and as we work uh, to get items digitized or to link them or to bring unknown and vulnerable histories into light. So you all have a card here that you should make sure you fill out before you leave. Um, think of this as a union card, not as a draft card. Um, we're one of the few institutions in American life where you're still allowed to fill one of those out, so, so please do so. But what is this archive? Um, during our conversations, we've wrestled oftentimes productively, but more often um, without full resolution, um, with the challenges that go into planning and building something that's as, um, as ambitiously named and framed as the CUNY Digital History Archive. So I want to kind of outline three of those challenges specifically, uh, and then go to how we're approaching coming up with some solutions. Right, some of these challenges have been thematic in nature. Should the archive aspire to become some sort of comprehensive historical record or should it be more modest in intent? To what extent should our efforts be driven by the sense that many of us share that CUNY's history as the people's university is somehow at risk? Okay, how do we balance these tensions with the effort to be uh, an inclusive archive and to draw as much activity um, to, to our process as possible? Um, uh, another set of challenges have been organizational in nature. What's already out there and what state is it? Um, how do we go about assessing what we have, what we can get, what might, be go what might be beyond our grasp? Um, how do we retain the sense of the distributed nature of CUNY's story as we move materials into a digital realm? Right? We deeply want to retain a clear sense of the provenance of the archival materials that we bring into the orbit of the CUNY Digital History Archive. Right? We're not going to erase any histories as we build this new history. Right? So that has significant organizational implications for our process. Right? How do we link to celebrate make more visible what already exists, like the archive at Hostos, okay? Um, and how do we do this with extremely limited resources, right? A third set of challenges have been technical in nature. How do we construct a multifaceted process to draw materials to the site that are spread out geographically, that exist in a variety of media? How do we technically accommodate uh, as wide a range of contributors as possible so that we can steadily grow the archive over time? How do we allow access to individual artifacts, contextualize them, and also allow for the ability for these artifacts to be shaped into stories and histories? Right? Um, and how do we exert quality control over what we hope to become a flow of materials to the site and ensure usability 
discoverability, and sustainability going forward. Right? So the groups and the folks who have been coming to these meetings have been thinking through and, and oftentimes arguing about these issues. Um, and we've only begun to, begun to answer them in the past year. Um, and this event, this launch of the CUNY Digital History Archive was planned in um, the great CUNY tradition, I think George Adi, I heard George use this phrase often, of, of building a plane as you fly. Okay? Um, we, uh, we've articulated a structure that we think can accommodate um, a loosely joined series of processes to help us work towards uh, an actual launch, physical launch of the, of the, of the CUNY Digital History Archive. Um, and these are the structures that, are, that we've formed thus far, but we're not wedded to them. We think new structures will emerge, new collaborative processes will emerge, right? We've got a team who's surveying existing archival materials throughout CUNY, identifying what might, uh, might work to be ingested in the archive, but identifying what we can be linking to, um, what protocols each of these processes will, will require. So we're working closely with a content team, deeply familiar with CUNY's history, um, who will identify and shape and develop strategies to collect histories that do not already exist in an archive somewhere, um, but need to be captured, such as the story of open admissions. Okay? I assume that we'll be pretty soon do, be doing oral histories um, with the gentlemen who were on the panel up here previously. And we have a technical team who's already launched an Omeka site um, that's not fully public yet to house the first version of the archive as it takes shape. Now, Omeka is a free open source content management system for online digital collections um, that's potentially scalable and shapeable to accommodate uh, the, the very needs of an archive whose inputs promise to be as multifarious as the, the CUNY digital history archives. Okay? So the technical team is thinking through the processes necessary to facilitate, support, organize, and sustain the work of the content and survey teams and the collaborators who uh, we hope to emerge from, from, from this meeting tonight. Okay. We're currently looking into funding opportunities and potential collaborations that will enable us to, take, to undertake this work in a more systematic way. Um, but you know, we're not letting our current lack of resources stop us from starting. Right? We're considering supporting events similar to this on other campuses, right? the CUNY Digital History Archive Roadshow, right? uh, and seeing those as uh, opportunities to, um, uh, to uh, to energize and to, to sustain energy around these uh, archiving activities, okay? Um, we intend to forge connections with various CUNY entities that can help us build the archive. Um, there's significant technical expertise on open source projects like the CUNY Academic Commons, blogs at Baruch, which is a project I manage at Baruch College, ePortfolios at Macaulay, the City Tech Open Lab. These are open source teaching and learning platforms um, that have great potential uh, to foster the, exactly the type of pedagogical innovation that Gerald Meyer um, fears we're, we're losing uh, at CUNY. I can assure him, if he's still here, uh, there's many of us uh, who are coming up in, in, in uh, teaching and learning realm at CUNY who are fighting uh, to, to maintain the same pedagogical principles that you so artfully articulated. Um, so in, imagine a, an undergraduate course um, collaborating on these platforms, on uh, the ePortfolios at Macaulay or blogs at Baruch, um, with American Social History Project, with the CUNY Digital History Archive team, um, to design and implement a series of assignments that teach students to do history through the experiences they can get building out the archive and then studying it. Okay? That's a very real and tangible process that we're exploring. Okay? So all this will take time. We'll proceed in fits and starts. 
Um, and you know we're unable to make any promises about what we'll be able to deliver when, uh, but we're going to do this, and we'd love your your and love and welcome your your input uh, and your collaboration going forward. Um, we can take. Do you want to take some questions, or you want to go? Sure. No, so, if there are any questions so. about think... the process of building the archive, uh, myself and other members of the steering committee are happy to answer them. If not, we can go right into the the next panel. Yes. Um, Bill Friedheim, retired from Burrow Manhattan Community College and actually chair of the retirees chapter of the Professional Staff Congress and an officer of the, the PSC. Um, I was at BMCC from 65 until I retired in 2006. BMCC was a hotbed of insurrection in the late 60s and early 70s as stuff rippled from City College. You know, it affected obviously other colleges and universities. Uh, two, I was also a member, and, you know, that's how I knew Alf Conrad and others, of kind of the uh, SDS for the elderly, uh, the new university conference back in the 1960s. My question is, and I'm sure you've acknowledged this, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, and you, you, I'm sure you've discussed it at all, but another obstacle you face is time. You know, I see Nancy Romer up there, and one of her dear colleagues at Brooklyn College, Bart Myers, just died about six months ago. You know, some of the panelists talked about people who have died. I know of people, you know, who are at BMCC, including students. Some have died, but a lot are still around, you know. So uh, what's this, you know, I know you need funds, but there's a kind of sense of urgency to get to people before they're no longer around. Agreed. <laughs> Any other points about uh, materials for the archive, Steve? Sure. Mm -hmm. Bill's point is, is well taken and it's real, and there's a group of us working through the urban education program to do try to find and identify new workers for people before they die. Obviously, so you need to have names and, and, and contact information. Please get them to us. That's important to know. And I and other people in the project will try to prioritize and do that. I'll do them myself if I have to. But I, you know, we'd like to build a team to do this. And that sense of urgency is very, very real. And also Any other the, questions the, from the, the mic? The more people we have involved um, uh, in working with us, the better opportunity we have to capture quickly. Right. Okay, so unless there are any other questions, I also want to remind you uh, to use this card or go online and fill out the form, but we would like to know who's here. This is our attendance sheet and your, your, your chance to join the team. So, um, Cynthia Tobar, why don't you um, take over with your panel? So in the interest of time, I'm going to keep my portion of the introduction very short and sweet. This panel came about because the time for us to learn about past struggles and to compare examples of sizable and passionate student movements from, recent, from the recent past at CUNY is long overdue. In the past, tuition issues were often uh, at the core of such protest movements. Uh, the need to uh, emphasize the uh, urgency for ethnic studies and diversity and open admissions, as our previous panel so eloquently put uh, uh, in to us uh, as a group, uh, all of this has historically kindled strong student protest. But the attack on uh, CUNY in particular has continued and is consistent, and so we thought it most adequate to 
tie this need for activism and how self-archiving is such an essential part of it. And I thought I would uh, open up with like a quote from Salman Rushdie, and I'm kind of paraphrasing it a little bit. It's not exact, but it's pretty poignant. Pretty much, those who don't have the power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless which I think is pretty poignant to the fact as to why we need to really get actively involved in being that voice for our own communities. Uh, because if you don't exert your voice, someone's going to exert it for you. And that's pretty much also kind of echoing the urgency and the need for an archive such as this. And also adding this uh, more, this need for a more a diverse voice, uh, not just a uh, predominantly male voice, but also a female voice, also voices from other underserved communities and overlooked communities that we have within our ranks and faculty and staff and student body. So without further, further ado, I really would like to uh, get started and briefly introduce each of my panelists in the order that they're going to be presenting tonight. Maureen Lane, uh, executive co-director of Welfare Rights Initiative, which was developed to aid student welfare recipients to become agents of social change and actively involve them in social policy. We have Susie Subways uh, towards the end. Wave. Hi, Susie. Awesome. Uh, from the SLAM, uh, organization, which was a multiracial radical group based at CUNY that fought for tuition, fought tuition hikes and for the, and the elimination of open admissions. And uh, she'll be, uh, she left some paraphernalia in the back uh, for anybody who wants a brochure on SLAM. So feel free to take one on your way out. Uh, we have Connor Tomas-Reed uh, from Medgar Evans and from the Occupy CUNY movement and Free University, who is a student educator, archivist, activist, who's been actively involved and a part of the CUNY community. Uh, and again, if you want more about their bios, it'll be in the program. And we also have Alicia uh, Osorio from uh, the Morales Shakur Center at City College, where she was the lead organizer of the City College New York with students in educational rights, and for Morales Shakur, she was the student director. And finally, we have Nancy Romer from Brooklyn College. And each of our panelists uh, today, for tonight, I have asked them to speak very briefly uh, about their past uh, activist activity, and also to try to find links to how self-archiving can have a, a strong effect in bolstering that activist activity, which is essentially why I initially got interested in this project. But uh, why don't we start with Mo? <clears throat> Hi, thank you, Cynthia. Yeah. And it, boy, it's swell to see you in person again there, Connor and Susie and everybody, and Professor Rummer. Hi. And you all, too. Um, yeah, it's good to see all of you. Um, as Cynthia noted, um, I'm now co-executive director of Welfare Rights Initiative, which is in its 19th year. It's a seven-credit year-long class that is taught um, at Hunter College, and it's cross-listed in sociology and uh, women and gender study. Um, and uh, the class was formed as a pilot project, and Pedro is really great to hear you. I miss you at Hunter now. I realize why I don't see you. Uh, anyway, um, so sociology uh, research um, assistant in a master's program, working with uh, Marilyn Gattel, um, was doing a study about people receiving public assistance at CUNY, nationwide, but, but CUNY, 
in particular this one summer, and uh, the student, uh, Melinda Lackey, who was the first uh, director of WRI and uh, started the program. At any rate, she um, uh, was startled to discover there was 28,000 students at the time. This was 1995, and um, there were... Uh, 28,000 students receiving public assistance at CUNY. I was one of them. And that summer, uh, there was a group of us that were given letters, uh, you know, received letters in the mail that said, you're receiving public assistance, we're interested in you uh, participating in a class and everything. And, you know, there was great fear, because I was still in a halfway house at the time. Like, oh my gosh, what, what am I going to be called in for? And um, you know, there's going to be like a surprise attack. And um, it was uh, a life changer. And uh, for the first time, I realized there were other people receiving public assistance at CUNY. We immediately connected that summer, uh, so before the cl first class even started, and went to the National Welfare Rights Union, one of their last big um, uh, hooplas there in, in Houston, I think it was, we were flown in planes and, well, yeah, uh, that were actually complete before we started uh, off the ground, uh, unlike CUNY. I love that. Uh, anyway, so the upshot is the class started, and um, it was the context of the class starting was the rhetoric around the 94, 95 political um, um, turmoil in um, Washington, uh, sort of led by President Clinton, who said that he wanted to change welfare as he knew it. Well, as we knew it, in 1995, there were 28,000 students receiving public assistance at CUNY. 90% of them moved permanently off of welfare um, upon graduation. And that study um, followed them for five years after they graduated. I mean, that's an astounding figure, 90,000. And by the time the president who wanted to change welfare as we knew it was in office, I guess, two years or so, or four years, uh, we had gotten down to about 5,000 students because welfare uh, did change and people's options for uh, what activities they could participate in um, were limited. So anyway, uh, the, the school, uh, the class began, my first activism was meeting the National Welfare Rights uh, Union and the women from the books I would read that semester. And um, then that year, too, there was a cute, uh, tuition hike, one of many, the, the, one, the, the one that was actually stopped. And uh, I was part of that big, I don't know if anybody was down at City Hall. There was a whole group of us who yes, got, was. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there was a whole group of us. Were you with me, Susie, who got caught off? We were cut off in the, by the police, herded down to the subway thing. And we were there, I, I guess, about six or seven hours. I didn't, uh, uh, before somebody, we, we were rattling, and they said, yoo-hoo, it's all over now. Can somebody let us out, you know? Anyway, it actually worked uh, as far as the... Uh, stopping the tuition uh, hike was concerned, but they were just biding their time. Since then, we've had 19 cohorts. We're now regularized. It is a, a permanent course. And uh, um, so, and each cohort uh, is involved with activism that is astounding. 
but I don't have time to tell you. Thanks. Hi, I'm Susie Subways. I live in Philadelphia, so if you don't see me around, that's probably why. Um, but I was in the CUNY Coalition in 1995 and in SLAM from 96 until 2001. Um, SLAM was the Student Liberation Action Movement. Um, and today I'm working on um, something called the SLAM Herstory Project uh, with my comrade here, Irini Mios Batistos, who's in the audience tonight. If you want to stand up, Irini, or raise, wave your hand. <laughs> Okay, we're working on this oral history project, right? So what that means is we're doing a lot of interviews, and we also have this blog um, that's up at slamherstory.wordpress.com, and we're putting up some audio there now. Right now, there's a lot of more archival material um, and completed articles and stuff like that, but we're doing, like, legit oral history, um, you know, audio. Okay, so, because I got a little bit of training. I went to oral history summer school. And now we're becoming more collaborative. Um, it was Irini's idea for us to ask, after everyone's interviewed, each person, we asked them, well, now that you've been interviewed, do you want to interview someone else? And that's working pretty well. Um, okay, so we're also, at the end, going to donate our, our, um, our transcripts to the Tamment Library, um, which is located at NYU, but anyone can get in there. You just go in the front door. You have to show an ID, though, which can be hard. Um, okay, so back there, um, by the food, I have these pamphlets. This is about the um, uh, sort of about SLAM's involvement in the global justice movement. Um, this is my little card. It has the URL of our little blog on it. And mainly the idea of this project is to serve the, the CUNY student movement as it is now. And so, you know, any ways that we can help do that would be amazing. So I was just going to talk a little bit about SLAM. Uh, so SLAM emerged from the CUNY coalition after that big protest in 95, where we, we had 20,000 people at City Hall. Uh, against the tuition hike. Um, and then in 96, uh, SLAM was a citywide organization at a lot of campuses. Um, and then uh, at Hunter College, um, uh, SLAM took over the student government, was elected to student government, um, which uh, it held until 2004. So that's eight years. Um, and so, so that was the longest campus to, to hold on to a SLAM chapter. Um, in 1998 and 99, we, um, citywide, we, um, pretty much led the movement to save open admissions, which was, you know, very painful for all of us because we did lose that fight. After that, um, we saw ourselves as having a mission to serve young people who were pushed out of CUNY or not allowed to, not really able to go because of um, accessibility and tuition, um, lack of accessibility and tuition. And part of that was that we, part of our goal from there was to serve those young people by um, fighting a lot of the Things like police brutality that were happening, you know, those were, you know, young, mostly black and Latino people who were, you know, could have been CUNY students, but were instead being shut down, by, shot by the police. Okay, so we had, uh, we worked with high school, thank you, um, high school students um, who had a big walkout, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, um, so what SLAM offered? I feel that SLAM offered a radical vision of a CUNY controlled by the communities, the, the working class, poor and people of color communities of New York City, and the university community, meaning the students and everyone who makes it function. Um, we had, um, we offered militant action outside of the control of the administration and the city. We offered a fun, imaginative, open movement rooted in youth culture and cultures of resistance. And SLAM uh, had a big emphasis on outreach and engagement. 
um, speak out, listening and talking to people. So with these four things, um, vision, militancy, culture, and outreach, um, these four things can, together can free our communities from the internalized blame that we're taught by those in power that has gotten so much stronger in the recent years, that, that whole blaming the victim thing, you know. Um, you know, it's, it's really pervasive these days. But we can free ourselves from that, free our communities from that, and build a movement of people who know their history and fight for their future. Thank you. Good evening. No, 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 no. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you. Thank you. It's so wonderful to see you all here tonight. Um, tremendous respect to my co-panelists, um, in particular, who are leading women in struggle, um, and also tremendous respect to the panelists before us for sharing all of these different movement histories. Um, I uh, want to be very brief. Um, I'd like to share a little bit Connor Thomas Reed, Medgar Evers College, and here at the CUNY Graduate Center, and uh, very proud to be a City College of New York alumnus. Uh, I'll share a little bit about activist archiving in the Occupy movement um, against social and economic inequality in which I was a participant, uh, participating in the assemblies and the working groups leading up to, through, and also beyond the September 17th to November 15th encampment at Zuccotti Park. Um, Occupy, uh, which may ruffle a few feathers here, um, is actually a very crucial model for the CUNY Digital History Archive to chart its own practices with. Um, and I think that we have yet to fully measure this generational sea change in which every single person who had a phone, camera, Twitter, Facebook, blog, Tumblr, or live stream could document and share in real time the public assemblies, street marches, sit-ins, days of action, legal cases, lots and lots and lots of police brutality, and neighborhood campaigns that bloomed all across New York City, uh, and soon thereafter in over 950 cities around the world. Um, during that time, uh, CUNY folks coordinated a range of assemblies on different campuses, student walkouts, teach-ins on and off campus, uh, a phone tree of educators who would cover each other's classes if someone needed to spend a night in central booking, and other forms of network solidarity. One of our main online hubs was Occupy CUNY News, which is unfortunately no longer active, although new projects like Youngest and Student Nation are carrying the torch. I remember one October 15th mobilization that brought out almost 100,000 people to Times Square without a single flyer being printed. It was all organized through online social media. Um, after a November 21st, 2011 peaceful assembly against budget cuts at Baruch College, where I was teaching at the time, uh, was attacked by baton-swinging CUNY security, a flurry of on-the-ground YouTube videos and photographs helped us identify which CUNY security and NYPD officers should be held responsible. This also helped corroborate the testimonies of the 15 people who were arrested that night and the dozens more who were injured. On a much, much more inspiring note, in the spring of 2012, CUNY students, faculty, and staff were instrumental in forming the Free University, a group that creates pop-up freedom schools around New York City to cultivate uh, space for political education and action. Um, so anyone could submit workshops online. We mapped out Madison Square Park, and on May Day 2012, May 1st, for those of you who are uninitiated, uh, 
we hosted over 40 workshops and 2,000 participants. Free University has been an opportunity since then, um, so not only in public parks, but also subway stations, museums, other public spaces where we've held classes, uh, to rethink pedagogical practices and curricula in urban public areas, in part by welcoming people outside of academia, our scholars in exile, thank you, um, to share their knowledge. Um, I'm very excited to share that uh, there's going to be our third annual May Day Free University, and every single person in this room is welcome to contribute a workshop. Uh, most recently, during this academic year, CUNY's dramatic turn towards militarization with the teaching appointment of David Petraeus, the return of ROTC after 40 years, the seizure of the Morales Shakur Center, and the arrests of anti-war students and alumni has been met with resistance both on and offline. We framed our opposition to militarism at CUNY in part through our archival work. We researched how CUNY was a hotbed of anti-racist and anti-fascist activity in the 1930s, how ROTC was forced out in the late 60s and early 70s, and we revived uh, the campaigns that were documented of CUNY's counter-recruitment efforts uh, when there was a wave of military recruitment in the late 2000s, and all around CUNY people were doing counter-recruitment work. Um, we've also critically poured through such pro-policing and military documents as the 2011 AEI report, which if you haven't read it, don't walk, run to read this. It's called Underserved, the case for ROTC in New York City, which maps out basically the plan that uh, very quickly came into being here in CUNY. And also the 2013 Kroll Report, which was the uh, CUNY administration's uh, legitimizing of beating students, faculty, and staff in Baruch in November 2011. Um, so we've researched this in order to oppose the blueprints um, for militarizing CUNY. As a result of this archivally grounded activism, we've been able to vote ROTC off of Medgar Evers College. Woo woo! And uh, thank you. And. Uh, We've resisted ROTC coming on to the College of Staten Island. Um, and a recent public hearing that investigated David Petraeus's war crimes has also fruitfully kept pressure on what is frankly uh, an absurd uh, uh, situation of this violent presence being in our CUNY classrooms. Um, so I'll end by saying that this work to digitally archive CUNY must, please hold on, this work to digitally archive CUNY must be a grassroots social justice effort. Um, this does not need to rely on funding. This does not need to rely on permission from above for people to operate. Um, as Pedro uh, Perraza and uh, Gerald Meyer had shown with the Centro and Hostos, uh, respectively, um, these movement histories will flourish if we make them flourish. Um, we have incredible walking archives among us who have yet to tell your stories and inspiring work to be documented today. And with regard to the last panel and a few comments that we've heard so far, we actually are in a race against time uh, to gather a vast record of these struggles to inform our own fire next time. So even within the last couple of years, several CUNY radical giants have passed on. Adrian Rich, Luis Reyes Rivera, Marshall Berman, Gene Anion, Mike Vazic and Major Owens. They're here in this room, their stories still deserve to be told. So I implore every single person in this room to participate in creating this people's history of CUNY because I promise you, one day it will be a central part of the curriculum when our students, faculty, staff, and communities run this university ourselves. Thank you.
Hi, everyone. My name is Alyssa Osorio. I am a steering committee member for New York Students Rising, um, one of the leaders within Students for Educational Rights. I was the student director for the Guillermo Morales Asada Shakur Center, and also I am a political science and gender studies major at the City College of New York. And what I want to note is that my degree will say that I'm graduating from the School of Colin Powell Global Leadership instead of the Social Science Department. So I came to CUNY and in my head, I made a very conscious decision to go to City College. I grew up in a really small town. I was the darkest girl in my class. And when I was researching schools I wanted to go to, I was accepted to a SUNY school and I was accepted to City College and declined from Hunter College, but I don't hold grudges. <laughs> and in like my small town little bubble, I imagined City College to be this like paradise of organizing because I read the history of the 1969 student strike and I thought time was a progressive force and if the students were militant then, what would they be like now? <laughs> and when I got to the college, I was in shock at, um, I couldn't find any organizing. And even like the straight and gay alliance, I had to go on a hunt for them. The uh, Office of Student Life had no idea where they were. And I started off doing queer student organizing and was really like disappointed by the movement because mainstream gay rights movement, very racist. And when I started seeing what was going on with the tuition hikes and I started seeing people who looked like me getting involved in the struggle and I saw what happened at Baruch College in 2011 and I was just sitting in the computer lab doing my homework one day and someone stood up in the computer lab on like a little crate because we don't have anything to stand on really. And they were shouting about the introduction of a fee for printing. So I like followed this person around and I went and I went to this room where it's this red door with a fist on it. And in this room, out of the dreary gray North Academic Center, it's it was made by a prison architect. It's made to like, you know, make you feel like crap when you go onto the campus. In this room, I saw so much life. I saw pictures of political prisoners. I saw people doing letter writing programs. I saw people doing um, all this amazing work within the community. I saw people who looked like me and people, like people talking about feminism in the movement when I was used to like really male dominated spaces and being like, can I speak for a second? And so that began a very intense love of the center. And I started on the ground organizing as soon as I could. And the first two kinds of organizing I did was for free printing to combat a tuition hike, which would be introduced through the student activity fee. And then later on, 
we combated both and we won. And I think it's really important for organizers to know that students can win because I think a lot of the times students aren't uh, apathetic, but they're repressed. They just don't know. And we started, we won like a 24-hour library during finals and midterms week through the organizing the center, gender-neutral bathrooms. A transgender woman was killed by campus. It was a hate crime. So we decided to get gender identity included in the anti-discrimination policy. We found out that students were getting molested in the library. So we started organizing for a gender resource center. We kicked Sally May off campus because they... <laughs> They were doing all these things, like, you know, they were sued for racial discrimination. They're an evil student loan company, you know. Um, we were trying to defend our Marshak library. All of this, all of this awesome organizing was going on and we were winning. And then October 20th, the school, the college seized the center. And if you look at any of the pictures depicting what happened that day, you could literally see the visceral pain on our faces because that that center meant so much to us so this is what I'm here to talk about is to reclaim that radical history and to also say that like who was a part of that center it was people of color working class people queer people transgender people like we were taking hold of our histories and building from it This is really, this is great. I appreciate so much everyone on the panel, Cynthia organizing this, Andrea for inviting me. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Nancy Romer. I uh, hired in at Brooklyn College in 19, the fall of 1973. So that's quite a while ago. And I came, I, I'm, I'm going to try to give a little historical context to this because I think, I think it's sort of, it's a bridge between the two um, the two panels. So I came in at that great surge that the first panel talked about, hiring and expanding CUNY, hiring new faculty. My department was hiring like eight people every year. You know, they were just coming in, coming in really fast. And, um, and I came in with great excitement about open admissions, wanting very much to be in a multiracial college and to be in a public institution with a union. Uh, that was, I didn't realize that there were almost no other <laughs> universities in the United States where the faculty were unionized, but I thought that was one of my criteria at, for a job. In the days that you actually would have criteria for looking for a job, <laughs> which says a lot. Um, but I think that the open admission struggle in the 60s was really about a victory of the class. It was a victory for people of color, and it was a victory for the class, and that is the working class and the poor. And um, that that whole the period of activism was a, 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 a everything was at stake, and we were defeated. Ultimately, we won some really important things. We won open admissions at CUNY. But the ruling class took one look at this and said, uh-uh, we are not going to allow this to happen. 
And so they constructed the, the New York City fiscal crisis, which basically was a shift toward progressive income inequality or regressive income inequality. And we're seeing the result today. It was just a bullshit smokescreen saying, oh, oh, we have no money. We have to pay the banks back. Why did we have to pay the banks back then and not at another time? Why didn't we have the strength to say no, not now? We're, we have this important social change going on and we're going to support it. That's not what happened. They bowed to the banks, basically, and, and the union movement was, was pushing back, but not effectively, unfortunately, at that time. And in the teachers' union, and, and I'm saying this because I want to ultimately talk about the, the Professional Staff Congress and, and its role in, um, in the fight back, um, but in 1968, the first panel talked about 19, a little bit about 1968 and the New York City teacher strike led by the known racist Albert Shanker. Now, when we go to NYSED events and they say, oh, Albert Shanker, we're like dying in our seats. <laughs> Albert Shanker, um, Woody Allen says, started World War III, but really was one of the major factors. The union was, uh, unfortunately, the leadership of the union opposed community control. And it was in that opposition to community control that we see the seeds of the white working class pushing back against the black and Latino comrades that they could have, they could have linked arms with, but in, in, to, to defend public services and expand opportunity. Instead, they said, oh, you know, oh, he's, you know, he's there, there, these black and Latino folks are, are anti-white, they're anti-Semitic. They allowed all, and not that there weren't wrongs on every side. There are always wrongs at every side. In social movements, everyone makes mistakes. So right there, if you're looking for perfection, you know, I don't know, go to an art gallery. You're not going to find it in social movements. You know, so, okay, so, um, so 75 was this fiscal crisis was the beginning of the, the, the institution of tuition, the hollowing out of government and the public sphere. That's, I'm sorry, I'm going to grab a couple more minutes. I'm sorry for that. Um, and, um, it, it, so the, the discussion that the, that the first panel had about how, uh, white faculty and, and ver, and some students too thought, oh, Medgar Evers, like, oh, that's not a good school. Or hostos, oh, they're bilingual, you know, they have their classes in Spanish. And there was a lot of this, oh, our, we used to have really good students at CUNY, now it's open admissions, our students can't read and write. And that was a lot of the narrative that was going on uh, in the four-year, in the elite colleges like Brooklyn College. You know, there was not that all the faculty or all the students thought that way, they didn't. It was well, it was divided. But there was that narrative going on, that sort of self-hatred kind of thing, or this, you know, th these divisions that were happening. We'll never be Harvard of the working class if we've got those students here. Um, and yet we saw all these incredible, uh, this incredible growth on the part of our student body, the, how they responded to higher education, which was mostly fantastic. Um, but there still was a sense of they're the other. So, um, in the in the middle of this, in the responses, there were faculty and staff who had always been involved in various progressive movements, whether it was um, issues of, of uh, tuition increases or uh, pushback against uh, uh, right wing um, 
uh, policies in ECUNY or uh, around support for the uh, revolutionary movements in Central America or uh, South Africa movements, et cetera, et cetera. We, and ultimately, we were faculty and staff, concerned faculty and staff, I always say, for this, that, and the other thing. And in the middle of the 90s, we decided that we would learn the union and we would basically organize in the union and take over that, that structure so that it would be a permanent structure for social change instead of being a regressive, not that it was really that regressive before, but it was passive. And it sort of allowed everything to happen. So we decided that we would, we would ally with students, we would understand the contradictions between faculty and staff, between full-time and part-time, and try as best we could, and again, this is almost impossible, but try the best we could to link arms and to find our, our, our commonality. Um, and and um, so just a, sort of a, a dramatic thing, we did this with SLAM. Um, at, at the Board of Trustees meeting, they were trying to get rid of open admissions, and the way they did it was to say, well, Remedial courses? They never had credit, by the way, remedial courses. Most colleges, you get remedial courses, you still get credit. But CUNY never gave credit for remedial courses, but they decided, oh, the four-year colleges are just too good to have anyone who needs a remedial course. You know, and you think of who goes to CUNY. You know, half of them are immigrants, so they come in. They're not going to be able to write properly, you know, properly in terms of, you know, what would allow them to pass the, the writing test. I mean, I know my grandmother lived in this country for like 70 years. She had, she always had the same grammatical errors. You know, they were, she never improved her, her English really that much. She didn't go to CUNY, but, but the point, she didn't go to college, but, or, or high school for that matter. But the point is that when you come in as an immigrant, it's very hard to pass those uh, exams. Also, when you come in from very substandard public schools, you may be native born, but you, you haven't been given, you've not been treated to a decent education. It's going to be much harder to get the skills to pass those tests. But you could be a brilliant philosophy student, you could be a brilliant sociology student, and you could be brilliant in math and not a great writer, or not a, a, not a, 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 a not good in math, but be a great writer. What did I say? What the opposite? I know, I'm, I'm sorry. So, at any rate, at a board of trustees meeting in 1999, Faculty dressed in caps and gowns and slammed students uh, with us, um, went to the meeting where the Board of Trustees were basically outlawing remedial courses at four-year colleges, which was really the, the end of open admissions. And we um, refused to uh, leave. We sat down, and we, it, was, it was pre-planned. We had decided we would do uh, civil disobedience, and we did. Um, and uh, I don't know, I don't remember exactly the number, maybe, Bill, you would know better, maybe 25, 30 of us were arrested and taken up to East Harlem to one of the precincts there. Um, and it really was, in a lot of ways, yeah, the, the send-off of, of, um, of a, a new faculty leadership that ultimately won power in the union and has continued to create alliances with students uh, more and more with community. I'd like to see it even more. And, um, and, uh, that has a class and race and gender perspective. So, um, I'm really glad about the social history project. I apologize for taking up all the time. Um, and I know that there are lots of older faculty and staff and students 
that could be reached through, uh, uh, you know, through the Clarion, uh, the newspaper of the PSC, and maybe do something that's viral, send something out to everybody who sends it out to their friends, et cetera, uh, to try to uh, capture. I, I hate to think of archives going to a non-CUNY um, campus. So thank you. I um, drafted some questions for the panelists just to kind of get a roundtable discussion going. And again, thank you to everyone for your patience for hanging on with us this long. Uh, we hope to open it to questions pretty soon. But I did want to try to get some feedback from the panelists. And you could start any uh, order you wish. Uh, what lessons you've learned from your experiences of student activism and demonstrations at CUNY that uh, what you believe were the short or long-term impacts of these social actions? Well, uh, a lot of the lesson, um, <clears throat> when WRI Welfare Rights Initiative first started, as I said, there were uh, 28,000 students receiving welfare. It was cut immediately because of changes, political changes, driven, fired by racist, um, uh, sexist remarks about people receiving welfare. We all know them. Um, and at any rate, uh, what, what we found is we, we were a part of student movements, and, um, but as things dispersed, we, we were left, and uh, there was nothing, there was no one who could really um, support uh, people receiving public assistance, uh, staying at school. Um, it, it needed political uh, support. So we started uh, doing outreach to get involved with Albany. Uh, first the, the city and then Albany. And we found over, over the last, uh, there's not enough time to go into it, but the students ha had made modest changes but that had a tremendous impact to bring back more and more students receiving public assistance. We're in a different situation than we were uh, 19 years ago. Um, I don't know if anybody. Okay, so um, something, a lesson learned that I learned the very hard way was don't let folks hijack your narrative. Um, throughout my time as like a CUNY student organizer, student governments love to be like, during our terms, this happened. And not to knock student government, like student activists, please run and give us your money. Um, but what that led to was people being like, you talk to administration and you get the thing done instead of you organize you cry a little bit in the bathroom because you're so stressed about midterms and getting 80 people out to your protests. And this is a process, struggling as a process. And you work really hard to get the tiny little win. And I think it's really important for folks to talk about things that seem almost unprofessional to talk about. Like, talk about why you know, students, a lot of students do drop out of CUNY because of financial issues. Like, 
talk about how a lot of my comrades have dealt with homelessness because of these issues. And talking about how incredibly, just incredibly difficult it is to be a woman in the movement, to be a queer person in the movement, and not being seen as divisive, but being seen as like a human being who is like affected by capitalism, affected by patriarchy. So those are two really, really important lessons I've learned because people will say that you loved being stepped on while being in the university. So if there are no other uh, feedback, I think due to time, I'm gonna just uh, shorten our roundtable discussion to one more question and then just open it up for questions with uh, the audience. Mostly the do-it-yourself archiving. What, do you, what are some other notable examples of do-it-yourself archiving that you've seen that directly involve the communities being documented to organize their own records for community intent? I know that there's a lot of buzz going around this notion of community-based archiving, this need of, again, involving the community, and this is ultimately something that we want to see mirrored and echoed as we start with the CUNY Digital History and Archive, and I just wanted to get uh, any feedback from panelists about examples that they've seen. Um, I could share a few things. Um, someone who was uh, an, an active participant in uh, the city college movement in the late 60s and early 70s, who I mentioned earlier, Luis Reyes Rivera, um, he talked about archiving being a survival instinct, um, very much um, about other people not hijacking your narrative, um, but quite literally, uh, that it is a fight for our lives to have our histories remembered. And so, um, you know, a, a do-it-yourself or a do-it-ourselves um, kind of approach to archiving, um, I think, is absolutely crucial. Um, uh, in many ways, um, one of the uh, more recent practices in the last couple of years of um, uh, doing collaborative public writing that was in the form of editorials or articles that we co-wrote and circulated. Um, these were basically documentations of our movement struggle that were happening that we could then circulate to activate more people to get involved. So archives to not be seen as just pieces of paper or bits in a server um, that just collects dust or pixels or whatever, but something that activates people to transform society and to transform our university. Um, so I think that, um, you know, very much there being um, not a, a concern about everything being pristine or about the message being 100% right, um, but making sure that uh, the message was getting circulated pretty actively. Um, I think also, you know, it's tough that when we're talking about DIY um, archiving that um, we may be losing sight of some different places that are already um, have some institutional memory. So um, I know that um, uh, the Hunter Envoy newspaper, uh, uh, the Graduate Center Advocate, um, both of their websites were attacked and they had a lot of uh, material that is now no longer available. Um, a head City College archivist who was here earlier, and I, I think that she had left uh, Sydney Van Nort, um, at their archive at City College, uh, one particular paper called the Tech News, um, uh, which then became the paper, um, is an incredible movement resource, and it's basically turning into, you know, brittle pieces of dust, right? Because people aren't rushing over there to digitize it. Um, so I think that as we're trying to figure out a sense of doing like the quick, 
uh, easily circulable kind of archive that we also need to take care of the things that are already here. And any kind of resources that are brought, this will be my last sentence, any kind of resources that are brought to the CUNY Graduate Center because of our place on the hierarchy of CUNY needs to be actively consciously brought out to the rest of the CUNY schools and brought out to the communities so that these aren't places where archives are just gathered and then protected and hoarded, right? But are places where we can actually have a dialogue uh, with communities about um, about this uh, historical memory and, and co-creation of that. Um, so, you know, this being the opening launch of it, I think that it's it's really important for us to be keeping uh, the horizon very far about what this project can become and how to empower people in the process of it. Thank you, Cynthia. I also forgot to thank you so much for putting this together, Cynthia. I really appreciate it. Um, and it's such a blessing to be here. Um, yeah, I, I put together some notes about this DIY archiving. Um, basically, for me to learn oral history, I'm trained as a journalist, and it was actually kind of a steep learning curve to learn oral history. It's pretty different. So I do encourage people to get some kind of training. Um, but it doesn't have to be, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually not in academia, but there's probably a lot of resources around here. There's also the um, Columbia University Oral History Program. They have a master's degree. Um, okay, also I'm Don't part forget of Groundswell. That's what I was about to say. <laughs> I'm part of this amazing network that Cynthia is also part of called the Groundswell. Well, it's Groundswell Oral History for Social Change. It's a national network, and um, there's a lot of amazing. I mean, oral history is kind of a lefty field anyway, or, or you know, not even a field because it's not just in academia; it's, in, it's all around. But um, it, within that, here's this sort of really amazing lefty grassroots um, network, and it has some of the people who've been doing oral history for decades. Um, one. Um, I, I wanted to shout out one project that I read this, um, basically a paper about, um, an article about by Daniel Kerr, and it's, it was called the Cleveland Homeless Oral History Project, and I encourage anyone to check that out. That was a participatory oral history project that, um, helped build this movement by homeless people, um, and it was also a radio show, and that's like the best example I've found of this kind of very grassroots work, um, using oral history. There's also the Trans Oral History Project, um, which has a, a, a big group in Philly and in Chicago, but it's all over the country, um, interviewing transgender, trans and gender non-conforming non people. Um, and then uh, the things that I find most close to what I am trying to do, what I would like for us to do for the project is um, books like Palante about the Young Lords, um, where they interview people kind of right after or still during the movement, also um, look for me in the whirlwind about the New York 21 Black Panthers. Um, these were voices of people in the struggle that, to me, like I feel like it can be political theory because political theory is when you basically you you come at you have all these ideas of what could work, then you go out there and you try them, you see what works, what didn't work, and then you have new theory. So I believe that oral history is like political theory in the voices and with the stories of the people who tried it out and practiced, and that's what I'm hoping to do. Um, we're ready to take any questions from the audience at this time, uh, if anybody has any that they'd like to ask. And if not, I can ask another question. Or comments or feedback, anything. It's your time. This is for uh, Alyssa. Um, how do we as administrators, as faculty members, um, nurture the type of movements uh, and students like you at City College, right? Um, I'm, I'm, a little bit disheartened by what I see at, at my college, at Baruch College. Uh, I know there's more elsewhere um, of, of students taking an active role 
in informing the decisions that are that that uh, have impacts on them, um, all the way from curriculum to student technology fee to all of these things that students do have a voice, um, but they've not organized around. So how do we how do we nurture that? That is an awesome question. Thank you. So something that helped a lot with us. And this was before I really got involved, so I didn't recognize it as much, was the PSC chapter was really supportive and reached out to us and saw what was going on and was like, oh, like, this is what's going on with the union. Like, let's talk. And I think it's a little different at Baruch College just because its nature is a little bit more conservative, where I feel like different colleges within the CUNY system kind of have different cultures and like City Co College just has this undercurrent of being aware that I sometimes take for granted but you know when you're in a classroom and everyone's complaining about stop and frisk like that's a very special educational environment. So Something I'm talking to my professors about is I want to I'm going to graduate in a year and I wanted to leave my leave a legacy of organizing because I think a lot of people will run towards uh, a goal and not have a power building analysis. And the thing that we're doing is talking to the professors, being like, what are students learning? What are they grappling with? And how do we turn this into an organizing 101 to plug people into what's already going on in CUNY so that they don't feel like they have to have the weight of building these structures by themselves, but also they're gaining the tools if they want to build the structures themselves of like their own groups. So I think faculty being there as a support, I haven't, I really don't know how faculty can even, can start something though within the student, within the student body because I haven't had experience with faculty starting groups except with the gender resource campaign where one of our faculty, she had a transnational feminism class and the students that came out of it were like, my mind is blown. So they started building community with each other, having discussion groups. And through those discussion groups, they formed the Sister Circle Collective. Mm -hmm. And the Sister Circle Collective has been like a great ally in our struggles and has been influential in our struggles. So. I think it has to happen organically. I don't, I, can, I don't think you can force it, but I think you have to be there when it's ready to happen. Any of the other panelists want to chime in? Yeah, I, I think uh, faculty, and I don't know about administration, I don't know how brave they can be because they can get fired really fast. Or fire, but I, or fire you, that's true. But I think if that's the beauty of tenure. Um, that's why we have to defend it with every bone in our bodies, folks. Otherwise, the right wing just takes over completely. But I think faculty have to stand up be, you know, in, in alliance with students, but also in defense of students when they get screwed. Um, otherwise, uh, none of us stand a chance. We have to be united. And, um, and it doesn't. One of the funny things that I hear everyone saying, or uh, uh, saying something about, which is that it doesn't even take that many people to make a change. I mean, your description was so amazing about change, concrete changes. You say, "Oh, they're small. They're huge. They're, uh, any victory breeds more victory, breeds hope." 
breeds vision. It's so important. So being able to stand behind the activists is absolutely central. I think so many faculty, because of the circumstance of academia and um, you know the, the sort of professionalism that uh, is pervasive, we we we're, we're so worried about our research that we don't think about what is really the mission of education, and it's to transform the society and to liberate it. I was going to say, but I'll wait. For oh, okay. Um, go ahead. Go right ahead, Mark. No, no, there's three people waiting now. I'll, I'll wait. No, it's okay. Go, go oh, on. Oh, are you sure? Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Alyssa, it was so good to be reminded of one of the things that, that has organically developed from the class is the cohort, the building of community of the students who are involved. And they start with themselves, and but it's sharing that personal that you were talking about because that's the cornerstone of organizing, whether it's on the campus at Hunter or <clears throat> you know, at City College or anywhere, and in Albany. It's the same exact approach. If we don't connect with each other on some personal level, then it's just playing leapfrog from one bad policy or semi-bad policy to another. So it, it was... Uh, and are you going to talk about the oral? Okay, all right. Uh, no, I mean, I could if you want. No, no, I mean, no. You know. no, we'll wait we'll, for the question. Sorry. Questions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, maybe this panel wants a comment. I guess what strikes me, sorry, Andrea Vasquez again, um, strikes me about both of these amazing panels tonight is collaboration, is a word that comes to mind for me. And thinking about how, you know, at CCNY, collaboration and community because none of the successes, it seems to me, none of the struggles, you know, no one claimed one group or one identity or one, um, one political position or line or one form of action was the winning um, tool or method. Um, it was just amazing to me how every story related City College to its community or people in the community who you know, were part of, of Ostos. There's just this importance of collaboration. The union supporting students, students calling on the union. Um, you know, not to mention sort of just staff, faculty, student within a campus kind of alliances. And it just, that, that to me is a, a very inspiring thing for us to keep in mind and to build on um, today. We certainly need to, I think, keep that foremost in our minds as we, because we're part of so many different campuses, organizations, um, within and without CUNY, um, you know, all of these extracurricular groups that are just so exciting that brought you into act act action at CUNY, right, um, is, is very empowering. And I think that's still there. We know that these groups are here. Students are involved in so many things in so many different places. So I see that as really positive, sort of the, the role of community and the strength of that. So I don't know if anybody wants to speak any more to that. But thank you. Could we actually get a couple of comments and then take it back to us? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I know Alyssa from City College, and uh, one of the things that kind of struck me, uh, well, I, I went to the MSCC, the Moral Shakur Center, community center. Uh, I started going there uh, after uh, the Baruch protest in early 2012, and I also was struck by just the, the, the amazing uh, asset that it was having that center in, in City College. I was in love with the fact that we had 
one radical student autonomous student space mm-hmm. in uh, in a in a major historical uh, uh, public university. And knowing how many people were involved in all these movements, knowing how many how many uh, uh, activists were in the, in the current in uh, in the circuit in, in City College, I was surprised that this year uh, I was the only person that was running for student elections. And I was just wondering, um, in 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 student activism at all, is it particularly necessary to have radicals in student government or to take over the student governments in our in CUNY? You can tolerate the bureaucracy of it, yeah. <laughs> you want to take another question? Yeah. Um, any feedback or just... Maybe one more. And one more, yeah. Um, I was just thinking, um, I just, it just hit, my, hit me about green cards but, and, and how that affects some of the student pop, uh, participation. And I was thinking about students. Um, I remember back... Um, Years ago, uh, it was very important in 68, 69, to get the, um, the white faculty, the, the traditional um, faculty to support us. And they did support us because simply the same way the press did, because of this, we made the argument, and it was clear, and it was uh, d- direct. And the same thing happened out in California at UC Berkeley with the third strike. The, the regular students supported the issues. And so I was wondering if that is possible now. I've understood, I understand that students have changed. I mean, especially a lot of students are giving so much money to the, to the colleges and universities that they feel differently. They don't feel uh, as beholden, perhaps. But anyway, I was just wondering uh, about reaching out to the general population and um, in, a, in a direct way, and if that's a policy, and if that you're doing it, if it's, is it working, are you trying to impact the uh, regular students and the regular faculty? That's a question. Well, I, I, I think that reaching out to the community has been uh, one of the biggest misses of the faculty and student movements at CUNY since 1980. I think that's been a big missing link, and it's been to our detriment. So I, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, I think that there's been, a, a, you know, Occupy aside, um, there's been a huge decline in activism because there's been this, this mar- you know, I think capital has gotten much more organized and clear about what its goals are and they've consolidated and concentrated and had more and more power in fewer and fewer hands. And people are scared. I don't think it's, I, I could be totally wrong, but I don't think it's because people are giving their money to the university. I think it's because people don't see a, a way out. They just see conformity as the only path forward, or not even forward, but the only possibility. So I think those of us who are very fortunate to have had these collaborative relationships and alliances need to strengthen those further and learn the lesson of outreach to community to get support from progressive communities because they're still out there. Not necessarily neighborhoods, um, but organizations are out there. And um, I think we just have to keep forging alliances. Breaks will happen like, like the break of Occupy, where a brilliant idea happens in, 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 with a set of tactics that ignite 
the imagination. Um, I think we have to learn more about what you were describing, that is how do we document it, how do we gather ideas, and how do we create structures so that real people can, I don't mean real people, people who have actually jobs and other responsibilities can participate. Uh, you know, so I think that, that all, we learn lessons from each step of the way, but the break of Occupy will happen again. That's why we need to be in structures in organizations that have histories of collaboration and, and unity in order to move forward together as those breaks occur. So I wanted to answer the student government question. Um, I've seen models of student activists taking over student government. The ones that come to mind is SASU, the State Association of the SUNY University, where it was earlier on where they, like, in the SUNY system, took over student governments, had their own office, used the student activity fees to fund their movement building. But I see now that there is definitely an attack on student activity fees and student organizing. So to me, it's a, a steeper uphill battle for radicals to get elected into student government. I don't think it's impossible, and I think it's valuable. And I also like the New Jersey United Students model, where they have like folks doing grassroots, and unless the grassroots is good, then you can't run for student government because the amount of bureaucracy you need to face in order to even function within the student government is ridiculous. Even I know folks who got appointed to student government wanted to have a little thing like a meal stipend for students that were struggling. And the school makes you jump through board, jump through hoops, jump through, you know, like mountains of paperwork. So it's like at the end of the day, you had dedicated your entire semester to this tiny thing <coughs> that means a little bit, but what could you have done if you were building like a mass movement of student organizing? So that's my answer for student governments. Um, I'm nervous about talking about the student government question because I've, I've in, I interviewed a few people about um, student government, Slam Student Government Hunter, um, and we're, I feel like one of the beautiful things about oral history is you get a lot of different um, uh, summations of our experience, and, and so we're, we're still at the beginning. Um, Irini, did, do you want to say something about it? She was actually part of student government in Slam for years, but you can say no. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Thank you so much. And uh, we have time for just this, and then I think we'll, okay. we'll wrap up. Hello. <laughs> um, I'll keep it very brief. It's really awesome to see everybody. Maureen um, was educated me at the time um, in 1996 around what the repercussions of losing Seek, uh, the Seek program was and um, was instrumental in helping us in, in, in the SLAM movement, um, in SLAM at the time. For those of you that don't, that don't know, Student Liberation Action Movement was a student run, was a student um, body that did take over the student government at Hunter College. Um, I was also editor-in-chief of the Hunter Envoy at the time, and I, um, I can tell you that that was not an easy uh, publication to maintain 
but it was the student kind of arm, um, outreach arm for SLAM at the time. Um, and I totally agree on, on, have, on, one, on needing to archive uh, those, that publication in particular. Um, in terms of the student government question, I will tell you this, it was a very bureaucratic process to keep it going. Um, because of the political ideology of the people with leading it, uh, it was important that the student government serve the students on campus, that it did create connections with communities and organizations doing work around the issues that were important to students at the time and creating those connections. Um, and it was very personally taxing to the people that were students trying to um, negotiate with administration, trying to keep an eye on, um, on what the needs of the students were, and also um, trying to do our political work. And I will tell you that it created a lot of schisms internally because, um, because student government was a vehicle for doing our work, uh, that was very time consuming. And we had to have some really hard conversations in terms of where we were gonna put our time and resources. It was very tricky to do it. Do I think it's a good strategy? Having resources uh, for low-income immigrant and new generations of students that don't have access otherwise, is that a good strategy? Was it helpful? Yes. Uh, was it personally taxing? Yes. Is it easy to do? Uh, no. And so it, it took a lot of intentional work. Um, and I'm glad we did it. Is it easy to replicate? I don't know. And I also don't know what the landscape is today. I can't imagine being able to do that at Hunter College now. Um, so anyway, there, there could be more conversation on that at a future point. I just want to say, can I say one thing? And this really builds on what you had said earlier. But this is what makes us, right? So my guess is you are a powerful person now in your own right doing interesting work. And, and it's probably very dynamic because you are. But you are partly supported in your dynamism, as everyone on this panel has been, by activism, by being in these organizations, by trying to figure out strategies and tactics, by creating alliances. That's our lives. We're so privileged to be able to have that in our lives and to share that. So I think there's a huge amount that you get from activism that has absolutely nothing to do with your transcript, but has everything to do with the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And I think that's a wonderful way to conclude. And uh, thank you again to Archive our panelists. Yes, and it's being <laughs> recorded. And uh, thank you so much to our panelists. I'm sorry we ran out of time, but thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone who stayed, everyone who is watching, and everyone who will watch in the future. I think this shows that we really could have had a week-long conference here on all of the subjects and, and, and topics that were raised tonight. And we are open to those events. So people should feel free to contact us if you want to organize something on your campus. You know, let's talk about that. I think we can have many more events like this. And of course, we want to get your card. We want you to think about what you're going to, uh, how you can participate in the archive. Steve. Just let me clarify one thing in case there's any confusion. The CUNY Digital History Archive is a fully public, accessible archive on a public website. It's available to everybody. It's not going to be locked behind any 
doors at the Graduate Center or any place else. The reason it's a digital archive is to make it public.